I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. Coming up, we hear an interview I recorded several years ago with Boulder author Bob Crafasi, a longtime water use manager. His book on the history and consequences of front range water use is especially relevant now during our long-term job. But first, some of the recent news in science. Solar panels do a pretty good job of converting sunlight into electrical energy for powering computers, cell phones, TVs, electric cars. You might think of useful electric energy like the smooth, steady sound of a prayer bowl, like this. But a lot of solar energy hitting solar panels ends up as heat, which is more staticky, like this. Heat energy is hard to convert into useful energy. Mostly heat just heats things up. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could capture the chaotic energy of heat and turn it into more useful, more coherent energy? We could harness the heat that hits a solar panel. We could get useful work out of the heat generated by our computers, our ovens, or anything else that heats up. And in the process, things that heat up would end up cooling off. About a decade ago, CU Boulder electrical engineer Garrett Modell wrote the book on how to harness heat energy. Modell really did write a book. It's titled Rectenna Solar Cells. Rectenna is sort of like a radio antenna on your car, channels radio waves into something you can hear. Well, the idea of a rectenna is to channel heat energy into something we can use. The idea of rectennas has been around for 70 years without much headway toward commercially practical ways to make rectennas. But that day is getting closer. Last month, Modell co-authored a paper that represents a breakthrough in rectenna technology. Modell's co-author is CU Boulder postdoc Amina Belkadi. The innovation was really the material combination. Nickel on one side and chromium and gold on the other side, and then inside nickel oxide and aluminum oxide. Belkati has figured out how to use incredibly thin wafers of metal to capture chaotic heat energy and calm it down into more useful energy, where the electrons basically stop dashing all around and instead line up in a quantum sort of way that even lets them pass through solid objects without any effort whatsoever. It's a process dubbed resonant tunneling. It's very mysterious. Bottom line, resonant tunneling helps bring order to the wildly moving electrons generated by heat. Belkati's tiny wafers are roughly 100 times more efficient at capturing heat energy than similar tools under development. Belkati says it'll be at least 10 years more to make her new rectenna technology widespread. But she says when it happens, we may be in for a more productive and a cooler world. We can help the planet not just generate our energy, we can cool the surface of the Earth. Amini Belkadi is a CU Boulder electrical engineer who's made a breakthrough for rectennas for channeling heat into useful energy. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KG News Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Today I'm replaying an interview with local author Bob Kofasi. Bob worked in water management and planning and is an environmental scientist with over 25 years experience. He was the water resources administrator for the City of Boulder's Open Space and Mountain Parks Department. He served on boards of directors of 11 ditch companies and is the president of several, supervising all aspects of ditch operation. We talked about his book, A Land Made from Water. Well, thank you, Beth, for having me here this morning. There's really a, a huge amount of things that have occurred in Boulder, Boulder County, left-hand valleys that have uh, really informed and influenced events around the western United States that took place right here. Uh, the whole notion of prior appropriation, first in time, first in right, which uh, many of us think of as uh, uh, singularly Western in nature, in many ways, developed in the Boulder and left-hand valleys and in the greater Front Range. So that's one really fascinating thing. Yes, in fact, I remember reading with fascination the story of that court case. I believe it was Coffin versus Left Hand. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that? There were some very um, exciting and actually semi-criminal aspects of that case, as I recall. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, I'll start with a little background from when it uh, started. Uh, really, in, during territorial days, the Left Hand Ditch Company, which incidentally is 150 years old this year, uh, the company itself, the settlers that came into Left Hand Valley started to divert water and work on the ditch in about 1863. A uh, gentleman by the name of Porter Pennock and another Joseph Jameson had heard rumors that the South St. Vrain and uh, Left Hand Creeks get close to each other in the mountains above Ward. And they went up there to explore it. And sure enough, it was close. And they um, worked on developing a short ditch that brought water from the South St. Vrain over to the left hand. And that really enabled agriculture to develop in the left hand valley. And so then the company formed and, and they started to divert water and uh, the ditch would wash out the head gate and they'd go up and rebuild it and that would occur for several years. Well, uh, around uh, 1878, it was a very dry year. And folks down below uh, Burlington, which is now known as Longmont, noticed that the creek was drying up. And they realized that water was being diverted out of the South St. Vrain into left hand. And a uh, person by the name of Reuben Coffin uh, decided to take matters into his own hand. Now, he had known about the ditch. His um, uh, wife was married to uh, Porter Pennock, so, so they were very close. In fact, uh, some of them had come across the prairie to settle together. So they were intimately uh, aware of how things were operating. Anyhow, uh, Coffin, who was a uh, Civil War veteran, uh, so in some of the terrible Civil War battles, they went up uh, with uh, another eight people uh, to the area above Ward and tore out the, the diversion dam for left hand. And I, I uh, just as an aside, I was digging through the archives, looking at the um, trial transcripts and all of this. Rumors had said that they had blown up the the dam and in fact it wasn't anything as exciting they mm -hmm. tore it out uh, and then moved all the water down the St. Vrain so that they could get it well the uh, left-hand ditch folks uh, were of course uh, very upset 
and they hired uh, a person by the name of uh, uh, Whiteley. And it turns out he was a uh, Confederate uh, colonel, a sharpshooter from Georgia, who had left Georgia after being um, disappointed with the uh, Reconstruction after the Civil War and moved to Colorado and started a law business. And he sued uh, Coffin and his buddies, and they were brought into Boulder District Court. And Coffin and his his uh, cohorts hired uh, a fellow by the name of Byron Leander Carr, who was also a Civil War vet. Uh, Carr had uh, lost his arm at Appomattox the day before Lee surrendered. So, so there's some really interesting uh, history going on there, and they they represented uh, the Coffin uh, crowd. And, and to make a long story short. Uh, left-hand ditch one in the Boulder County District Court, and Coffin and, and them uh, appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court, where it ended up in front of uh, Chief Justice Elbert, who had formerly been a territorial um, governor. He has a mountain named after him. Uh, he was married to uh, Evans's, uh, the second territorial governor's daughter. Who uh, also so has a mountain named after also, him. <laughs> yes, uh, interesting, interesting folks. And, and he was, uh, Elbert, was uh, very much involved with uh, recognizing that in order for Colorado to develop, we really needed to have water distributed as widely as possible. And he was concerned that corporate and private interest accumulation of water in, into very few hands would hinder the growth of Colorado. He was particularly concerned that if water uh, ownership was maintained with people that just owned water along the river corridor, which is called riparian rights, if that were to uh, become the law of the land, that it would really shut off the possibility for for growth in the area. It's uh, almost a socialistic view. And in fact, he was involved uh, with creating the Colorado Constitution, which uh, named uh, or, or stated that water is property of the people. And they also allowed for county commissioners to set rates for water, some very radical uh, ideas at the time. and. Uh, as the Supreme Court Justice, he was looking for an opportunity to flesh out the ideas of first in time, first in right. And so he upheld the left-hand uh, uh, decision and articulated what we now know as the Colorado Doctrine in that decision. That then propagated uh, up into Wyoming. It followed um, Elwood Mead, who became the state engineer in Wyoming, and then other states as they be, as they entered uh, the nation, uh, utilized the Colorado Doctrine as the basis for their legal systems for water. And so today, all of the Western states uh, have one variant or another of the Colorado Doctrine as based on the Coffin v. Left Hand decision. And that was a really interesting focus in your book because you developed that in several chapters, how this approach to water use started as almost, as you said, a socialist or populist doctrine, and now it's kind of reversed. And now water rights are held by a small number of large groups and controlled, and there's kind of a revolution brewing against that. 
Yeah, there's there's uh, been very interesting in the 1880s and 90s. There were other court decisions that followed on that prevented corporations from uh, ex essentially extorting money from farmers. They they required uh, various uh, ditches to sell water at reasonable rates and do other things that that prevented uh, inordinate profits. There were a, a, a very strong reaction against foreign and East Coast. Uh, capital coming into Colorado to build ditches, and uh, the result of various decisions eventually put the ownership of uh, the various ditches that developed up and down the Front Range into the hands of the various farmers. But we have a system that allows water rights and shares to be bought and sold, and so over several generations, the various cities and industries have accumulated those shares. And so at one time, where it was a very egalitarian system, is now rather consolidated with ownership in cities and such. It's not to say that we don't benefit from that. If uh, various cities didn't own some of these water rights, well, we wouldn't be taking showers or flushing <laughs> toilets. So, so it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, development, but it has, has been a progressive change over the decades. If you're just tuning in, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and I'm Beth Bennett. With me in the studio is Bob Crafasi, and we're talking about his recent book, published by the University of Colorado Press, on the history of water use in the Front Range. The book is called A Land Made of Water. So let's talk about ditches. We all have seen these ditches in our travels around Boulder County, and it was very interesting to me to hear about the history. Like, for instance, they were all dug by hand initially, and now they're, of course, all lined and controlled. Um, can you tell us about a few of the local ditches that we see on our daily routes? Sure. Well, they're, they're all over Boulder. Uh, you, really, you really can't avoid them in many ways. Uh, they come out of Boulder Canyon, Left Hand Canyon, uh, South Boulder Canyon, and uh, distribute water across the landscape. If you're here in Boulder, you, if you've spent any time in Ebon G. Fine Park, you'll notice that Farmer's Ditch is there in, in the park, that diversion and that goes off to the north side. That was built uh, in the 1860s to take water up into what were then dry tablelands north of Boulder. And uh, the folks that founded that ditch, they uh, essentially developed the idea of real estate speculation. They were entrepreneurs uh, developing water. And what they realized is, is that if they uh, bought some land in North Boulder and then built a ditch to it, they could then supply water to farms, turn around and sell their, um, their water and the, the farmland that they've purchased at a profit. And that's precisely what they did. So that, that ditch goes through uh, the, the Mapleton Hill neighborhood. It goes through the community gardens and all the way up to Boulder Valley Ranch. On South Boulder Creek, uh, William H. Davidson uh, and another intrepid pioneer, he uh, came across um, and he was into mining and that, but he, as part of his accumulation of land for mining, he realized that he also owned various tablelands. Davidson Mesa is now named after him. And he developed his ditch. He, they built it for $14,000. It, it, it um, takes off near the trailhead for the Mesa Trail off of uh, El Dorado Springs Drive, and it winds its way 
east through Louisville and, and heads out that way and irrigates a lot of open space land and land in and farms in uh, Louisville and Lafayette. Well, Davidson, in, in developing that, he was able to sell shares and essentially double his money. He had some very uh, well-known uh, settlers uh, in the area investing in his ditch. Um, Senator Teller, who was Colorado's second senator, had uh, land along the ditch. Um, uh, Loveland, the fellow whose name uh, the, the town of Loveland is born after, who was a railroad and coal mine developer, was also an early investor in that ditch. So these guys recognized that building some of these, these ditches created real possibilities for profit. A few of the other ditches around Boulder uh, is Silver Lake Ditch, uh, one that's near and dear to many people's hearts in town. That uh, many people will see the flume that is up in Boulder Canyon near Elephant Buttress. And that was built in the 18, basically 1888 to 1890. By the time Silver Lake Ditch was built, the really good bottomlands were taken. So the earlier ditches, they were able to settle easy to reach lands, easy to dig ditches. And Silver Lake came along kind of at the end of that. William Maxwell, George Oliver, they had helped develop the toll road up Boulder Canyon. They saw opportunities there and they uh, built that ditch, which was also uh, a, a scheme to sell uh, water for and, and develop real estate. They built um, some of the reservoirs in what's now the Silver Lake watershed that the city of Boulder uh, owns. Mesa Reservoir out at the end of the ditch in North Boulder to operate all of that as an integrated system. And that is exactly what they did and eventually sold that off. And, and today the um, uh, shareholders of Silver Lake Ditch uh, are out there managing it and, and working hard. Folks uh, uh, dealing with the, the aftermath of the flood and such, uh, really difficult work uh, replacing the flume up in the mountains. They're uh, really interesting and difficult work. And of course those ditches, as you just said, are still being used. and the repercussions filter through society in a lot of different ways. For instance, just after I finished reading your book, I saw a front page article in the camera about a conflict between a landowner and a ditch company. And the landowner really liked the cottonwood trees and the mm -hmm. ditch company wanted to cut them down. And of course, based on the prior appropriations and the water law, the ditch company has the rights. But as you explain in a lot of detail in your book, and maybe you can recap this, the ditch companies then have to go to a lot of expense to enforce their legal rights. Right. The water rights themselves are one thing, but the other aspect of it that a lot of people overlook is that there's an easement associated with these ditches. They're, they're called prescriptive easements, and they're essentially easements that have developed over a long historic period of use. When the various people built ditches, like Davidson, he owned the land, and he owned the water rights. He didn't go sign himself a, a document saying, you have an easement across your land. He just built it. And back in those days, a lot of the land, like when the Anderson Ditch was built, it was Indian land. They still hadn't even ceded that to the American government uh, as some of the treaties went. So they were building these ditches oftentimes during, during when it was still treaty lands. And uh, then eventually uh, these, these ditches got built. Uh, I like to joke that uh, managing easements have put more lawyers 
kids through college than uh, uh, than the water right transfers themselves, because these these ditch easements become and can become very contentious. You have various cottonwood trees or other really nice lush vegetation growing up along your ditch, and, and uh, then a ditch company comes through and says, well, gosh, we have to uh, cut these trees down or, or bring a backhoe through there to maintain it, which can be very uh, traumatic for a landowner. The ditch company has legal obligations under state law to maintain a ditch. If the ditch were to breach and flood, they become liable for that. They have a right to run water at a certain amount. Uh, to uh, bring it to their shareholders and they need to bring equipment through and have it safe for the ditch rider to walk along the land. Yet the landowner maintains rights as well. They have the right to utilize their property and to enjoy that and the gray area where those uh, two uses intersect are where a lot of conflict occurs. And another area of conflict has to do with that, another re repercussion of the ditch is that there's a lot of seepage into the surrounding area, and that creates what you call the hybrid ecology around the ditches. And maybe you can talk briefly about, like, for instance, the, the orchid story. Sure. Uh, the, the irrigation that occurred, many of these areas, they developed. And in fact, that's why they irrigated. It was arid land. If you had go out to uh, Coal Creek in that area and look around um, Rocky Flats, you'll see that there's cactuses there and short grass prairie. There are not wetlands out on those flats. When they started to develop those ditches, they, they redistributed the water around the landscape and then could flood irrigate. Well, various riparian plants like the Ute Lady's Tress Orchid, a, a federally listed species, was then able to distribute itself out and follow itself out into these irrigated hay meadows. Well, when they started looking at the Ute Lady's Tress Orchid, uh, when it was first identified in Boulder Valley, the f initial reaction was, by gosh, we have a rare species here, and there's cattle grazing going on, and that cattle grazing is going to kill off the orchid. So the land managers at Open Space said, now we have to stop grazing. And that's what they did for a few seasons. Uh, well, lo and behold, Canada thistle and other non-native plants and then higher grasses started to grow in and shade out the uh, orchid species. So next thing you know, the orchids are uh, dying off and they're scratching their heads and they realize, gosh, we have to bring back grazing in order to protect a federally threatened species. And so what they realized though is that if they were careful about when they did the grazing so that they could avoid grazing when the flowers, the orchid bolts and spread its seed, they can expand the populations. You just heard local water expert Bob Crafasi talking about the history of water resources and development on the Front Range. I'll link to his book in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Joel Parker is our executive producer. Shelley Schlender contributed the headline and I produced this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Claude Debussy. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material from the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.